The genius and power of the internet can't be overstated. This has started revolutions and shine light on the inner workings of our government. Our natural unalienable rights are now considered to be a dispensation of government. And freedom has never been so close to slipping from our grasp as it is at this moment. We also have access to information like never before. But at the same time, so much of the information is intended to deflect, confuse, and upset you. Made by people who want to profit off you or outright control you. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. All of this is exactly why we need to know history and philosophy. We need to understand where we came from so we can know where we're going. Welcome to the show. Would you like to hear a podcast? Hello, and welcome to the Our Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua, and with me today is someone that will do another take on the history of this time period that we're discussing with the Reformation and all the associated things going on. We are going to be focusing on things like the economic systems and social change, the nobility, war, politics, power shifts, these types of things. And so if you would, would you go ahead and just introduce yourself and tell us about what you are associated with, what your podcast is, that kind of stuff? Hello, I'm Benjamin Jacobs. No, I'm really not. It's still just me. I am sorry, but whenever I went back to re-edit this specific episode, for some reason, the beginning of his audio cut out, and I missed him introducing himself. So I am going to have to introduce him and insert that in here, and that is exactly what this is. So... We are talking to Benjamin Jacobs. Benjamin Jacobs is someone that has a history podcast that I have listened to almost all of, and I believe that it is very good. I enjoy it. The podcast is called Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. And he has a master's degree in city and regional planning from Rutgers, and also a bachelor's in international relations. He loves history, and so that works out very well. And again, he has this podcast, and I'll read you a brief description of it, since he is not able to do so because of my fault, and I do apologize for that. But uh, the description straight from his website. Originally intended as a history of the Thirty Years' War, the scope of the project grew to now include the entire early modern period of European history. The project has started with an introduction to the geography of Europe and the ways its residents lived in the Middle Ages. After the introduction, the podcast will cover the events of the Protestant Reformation and their geopolitical context, the wars that resulted in their impact upon people caught up in events. Also touched on will be changing technology, the role of women, class, the economy, the military revolution, and many, many other things. So again, I have listened to the majority of this podcast. He kind of got a little bogged down in the early period after the fall of the Roman Empire and what we think of as the Middle Ages, and there's a lot in there about that. There are, I think, two seasons or more just on that time period, and as of this recording at least, it doesn't really yet get into the Reformation in full yet, but uh, obviously that is the plan and that's where it's going, so hopefully this was a nice chance for him to get to talk about the Reformation and these things that he hasn't had a chance to get to yet in his podcast. One of the reasons is because his podcast is fairly detailed, but not in a, a boring way. It's in a very good way. It gives a lot of content, a lot of inf- 
information, but in an interesting way that's engaging and a lot of stuff that you probably have not heard before. So I would highly recommend giving his podcast a try and listening if you're interested in this historical time period. And with that, I will get back to my response to his introduction, my original response at least, and we can pretend like uh, this was him introducing himself. Yeah, yeah. So with that, let's just go ahead and go with that, because that was the first thing I was going to ask you about is what the political and economic landscape was after the fall of the Roman Empire and kind of how did that evolve and shift into what would be recognizable as like the late Middle Ages into the Renaissance and Reformation into this time period we're talking about? So uh, let me look at you know, you're talking about the years, uh, you know, 476 to 1000. You, you have uh, an economy that's uh, extremely local. Uh, people are producing consumer goods, if you can call it that, uh, you know, within 20 miles of where they're going to be sold. Um, there's very little long distance trade. But, um, and, uh, there you, you get this infusion of Germanic tribes. And over that time period, you know, 476 to 1000, um, you get this merger of Ger- the different Germanic traditions and then what's left of the Roman, the local Roman administration. And the fact that the vast majority of the population considered themselves Roman and you sort of get this um, small group relatively speaking, of Germanic-speaking invaders who layer themselves in as a new aristocracy. And then, you know, the old aristocracy doesn't necessarily go away, so there's this real hybrid culture that develops, and it's pretty different everywhere. Uh, And there's an extreme amount of locality. So any kind of generalization is almost... Generalizations in general are dangerous, but in this period in particular... Yes, (laughs) Um, it, it, you know, pretty much everything I'm about to say is wrong in some way, shape or form. If you, you can find different examples of how things went differently in, in different places. So, I, um, I think, I think that's a good initial answer to your question. <laughs> okay. Yes. Yes. I think that is, that sets the stage for us and lets us know kind of what's going on and how we got into this time period we're talking about. So, Um, One of the things that I definitely wanted to get more about and get your take on would be feudalism. Could you just introduce kind of what the feudal system was just from a general standpoint and then also talk about kind of how how did the common person interact within that economic system as well as how did the aristocracy or the lords or whoever was more at the top end of the class system, how did they operate and interact with the system? Sure. So the feudal, so I should just start out with a caveat that the word feudalism is one of these words that means different things to different people in different places and times. Um, Strictly speaking, a lot of historians like to limit the word to just uh, the system that developed in terms of the nobility in Europe. But um, because we're normal people, uh, let's let's expand the definition a little bit to just be talking about sort of the whole gamut of uh, relationships, uh, legal and social and cultural relationships that existed in Europe at this time. Um, so to go back to that strict 
you know, historian definition of, you know, what feudalism was in terms of the aristocracy, it was a hierarchy of loyalty oaths, essentially, in which someone promised to provide military service to a lord in return for land. Um, there's a lot of theories about how this developed. There are precedents in both Roman and Germanic cultures. Hmm. Um, so it's really hard to disentangle them. But long story short, what you one way of looking at it, which I like, although it's not necessarily right, <laughs> is that essentially the land was being pay provided in lieu of a salary that's probably towards the earlier end of that that date range of you know 476 towards that end that wouldn't be right um but certainly once you get into the empire of charlemagne and the franks uh that is almost certainly sort of how it was being thought about because they the, the high point of the sort of romantic germanic fusion was really in that empire and he was uh, Charlemagne was consciously going out of his way to create, to try and create a Roman empire, but without a tax base. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> so, <laughs> so in lieu of a salary, you got land uh, and you could tax the land and get resources from it. Uh, and so that then becomes this fractal-like uh, pattern where, you know, the king has a bunch of land, he gives it away to his subordinates in return for promises of military assistance. They then break up their land and give it to their subordinates in return for military assistance and, and so on down the line. Um, it gets really complex because as the, once it, after Charlemagne died, it became hereditary, the ownership of the land. Under Charlemagne, when you died, he didn't have to give it to your kids. He could give it to whoever he wanted to. But after Charlemagne died and the his empire started to break up, things got sort of drifted into hereditary ownership of this land. And at that point, these families were seeking for themselves more than for the state. Uh, and it becomes sort of impossible to even talk about a state at that point, um, because they're seeking for themselves, they would engage in loyalty oaths with multiple lords, at which point this nice clean hierarchy becomes a tangled mess. Um, and there were all sorts of legal attempts to try and disentangle it, but really, um, the, it never really worked the way it was supposed to in theory. <laughs> Um, seems to be the way things work in theory oh this is going to be great and then in reality not so much the, there are a couple exceptions though in part of the reason that it didn't work out so cleanly is that it evolved right in in mainland europe in england where you had the normans come in and just like nuke the anglo-saxons completely clear away their their legal traditions to a greater or lesser extent they saved stuff that was useful and then imposed the french legal tradition on top of it um they got to do what they wanted it was a complete sandbox and so the feudal system in england tended to work more close to the theory <laughs> than it did anywhere else in europe because it was a complete blank slate um so in terms of what common people were experiencing you talk about a little bit of a different system but we, we can put it under the feudal system it's called the manor system and okay. basically, um, by the time the evolution was slow, but basically the 
peasants who are people who worked on the land and are based in pre-modern societies. Peasants are the source of all wealth. There's really, you know, you can talk about trade networks in the Mediterranean, uh, but to a greater or lesser extent, they never quite uh, hit the point of uh, real capitalization the way we think of today. Um, so in, you know, in pre-modern, pre-industrial societies, peasants are the source of all wealth. Um, and it's just a question of how you extract it. <laughs> so the, in the manor system, essentially the evolution again is really complex. There's German and Roman precedents, but essentially what happened is that the poor farmers of the Roman empire were getting pressed down by all the chaos of that time and being forced more and more into dependence on rich landlords. At the same time, all this chaos um, meant that the Roman Empire wasn't expanding anymore. They weren't getting any new slaves. And uh, so basically the Roman economy, which was largely slave dependent, uh, all of a sudden they were started running out of slaves. And so the status of slaves became more and more valuable. So slaves were sort of getting lifted up in the legal system. And they all sort of merged. <laughs> um, the, the legal status of these peasants was extremely complex. Um, but for the most part, uh, a huge portion of them were legally tied to the land. And they were called serfs. They were technically considered unfree. But we really can't think of it as being the same way, same thing as like slavery as it happened in the United States. Um, it wasn't great. <laughs> there was a lot of, you know, there were elements of corporal punishment that were allowed, but in general, they were treated as free people, except that they weren't allowed to move around. Um, they, they had a lot of the same legal rights as their quote unquote free neighbors. The only thing that really distinguished them is that they were sort of renting themselves if okay. that makes any sense they worked and they had to pay a big portion of what they owed uh you know what a big portion of what they earned was paid to the lord um and uh but otherwise they were living the same lifestyle as the free peasants um so what that what lifestyle was is that it was very focused on the village and it's called the the open field system where basically you get a bunch of land everybody sort of splits it up into chunks uh, that will provide enough food to get you through a certain period of time. Um, and then everyone owned little chunks, but then also there was essentially communal ownership over the entire thing. And everyone would get together every year and decide what they were planting, when they were going to plant, uh, and how they were going to do these things. And the, uh, the, the fields were split in three to allow crop rotation so that everyone, everyone owned a chunk of each of the three fields. And, you know, one year this would be wheat, the next field would be beans, and then the third field would be fallow, and then they'd switch. Uh, and this helped, you know, keep the soil fresh and keep down pests and, and all those kinds of things. Um, and the, the idea was that everybody got sort of enough chunks of the fields to let themselves uh, feed themselves and their families and pay their rents to their lords. In reality, there was probably a large group of people who were effectively landless. 
uh, but earned enough working on other people's properties that they were able to keep themselves from starving in most years. That's nice. (laughs) (laughs) I, I think it's fair to say that the crop yields were very low compared to what we would expect now. And um, most people were on the edge of starvation in many years. Hmm. Um, But if you owned land, it was better. And there were certainly some peasants who were actually fairly well off in any village. There were definitely community leaders who, uh, you know, over the course of generations, you know, these, these peasant families were working for themselves just as much as the lords were. And, you know, over the course of generations, some of these families managed to put away a fairly substantial amount of land because even though this was all communal land, they were all still buying and selling chunks of it. It's an insane system from a modern standpoint. It's really hard to wrap your head around. But yeah, some a little of these, complex. It's <laughs> extremely, extremely complex. But for these peasants, they spent their entire lives in it. Most people didn't travel more than 20 miles. And so they knew it like the back of their hand. And some of the court records we have are crazy. Cause you know, we sort of assume that these, there's these downtrodden peasants who are just getting abused constantly by the nobility. And you actually read the court documents and these peasants who have no legal training and a lot of them are barely literate, but they just start expounding legal doctrines <laughs> because, <laughs> nice. you know, they have nothing to do except go to court and farm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's, um, that's basically feudalism for you in the European context in the Middle Ages. Okay. Um, there, it, it, there was one other thing I wanted to ask you about. You, sure. you mentioned serfs and you've been talking about that, how that worked out and what that looked like. I had another guest that called us in modern society free range serfs. That basically, <laughs> yes, we have the freedom to live our lives and do our thing as long as we stay within these boundaries that the government sets up for us. And um, and made a comparison there. Would would you say that's at least relatively accurate? I mean, you you can sort of say that about any society. Like, <laughs> true. I, I mean, the 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 question is the legal restraints on you. Are they things like don't commit any murders, or is it you need to pay a uh, you know a, a chunk of your income to uh, you know, the Lord, you know, in order to, uh, continue to have your land. And if you don't, they're going to come and take all your stuff. So like Uh, property tax and income tax. Yeah. There, you can, you can see it that way. (laughs) A Um, different version. But, you know, there's also the flip side of it is that there's a ton of, uh, legal status differences. You know, being a serf wasn't just, um, you, you had to pay extra taxes. There was also like, um, you know, it, it, the Lord could come in and beat you if he found you off your land. Oh, nice. <laughs> uh, you know, corporal punishment was a real thing. And there's a lot of stuff that we take for granted that were not basic rights. Uh, I mean, it, the very concept of rights actually dates to the Middle Ages, but it it isn't, you know, the, this concept of universal human rights that we have. In the Middle Ages, it was, you know, I'm a member of the, you know, saddler's guild and as a member of the saddler's guild i have certain rights <laughs> as okay. a pe- as a peasant as a serf you know you you would have a right to get feasted by your lord on christmas which is probably <laughs> the best meal you'd get in the year even though it was all his table leavings yeah. 
But, um, and, and they had these very detailed, like, if I'm coming to your land to help you, you know, bring in the harvest, you know, I have to come to your land to do work for you, uh, to, to help bring in the harvest every year, but you're going to give me two pints of beer, a half a chicken, (laughs) (laughs) a loaf of bread (laughs) for every day that, you know, and so the, the, uh, you know, comparisons to serfdom are, in a modern context, you can certainly see it that way from a certain point of view. But what the serfs actually, the conditions that the serfs actually lived under, uh, you know, the 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 legal restrictions that they lived under were uh, kind of an order of magnitude worse than anything we would be even vaguely familiar with, because the nobles had the nobles as a class had additional rights you know they 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 were law and order in the area that they owned okay Um, well with that could you get into the nobles and kind of their role and how they were different sure so the basic concept was that they were a military aristocracy uh from the very basic stuff that i said before in terms of the feudal hierarchy you know their role in society was to provide to be the military this this function sort of got developed later and in the early middle ages you're you're talking some fairly fluid boundaries uh you know if you were a peasant who got rich enough or lucky enough say say you found a dead knight by the side of the road and you stole his stuff (laughs) um no one and, and you then you know uh put some bread in a basket threw it over your shoulder and went a few counties over and signed on as a, a man at arms with that Lord, no one would really look into it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and now you're a knight. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, as time went on over the course of the middle ages, though, um, people became, it became a real class, a, a class consciousness developed, which is, it's a sort of a sociological term where, you have to think of yourself as separate and special and there's boundaries that get policed um, between, you know, this class and the rest of society. Um, So the main function of this class was that they provided the military service. They, you know, helped provide law and order within their area. Um, That's, um, you know... And then every little place had different sets of legal rights uh, that came with the status. I think the the best way to think of it, uh, the best way to explain it is in terms of the Wehrgeld system, um, which is something that died out over the course of the Middle Ages. But it starts out as a practice within Germanic societies where in, in very traditional societies, um, law and order is essentially maintained via blood feud. Where if oh. you kill me, my family goes after you. <laughs> <laughs> and ultimately, it sort of doesn't matter why anyone killed anyone. It, very quickly, things devolve into, you know, escalating cycles of violence. And um, that tends to, it suppresses violence initially because you know that if you kill someone, it's not just you that might get beat up or something. Like, they're going to go after your family. Um, and so, and, you know, things can get really bad, but, you know, uh, so it can suppress levels of violence initially, but then 
things happen. Eventually, someone kills someone, and then just everything goes, you know, completely pear-shaped. And especially as these, you know, sort of Germanic tribal societies evolved in the context of the Middle Ages, where these different families started forming alliances, and then all of a sudden, these family alliances also controlled land and large amounts of resources. Um, this, these, these blood feuds could tear kingdoms apart. And so the kings would come in and sort of say, all right, we need an alternative to an alternative way to resolve disputes because this is affecting, you know, all of society. So the Weregeld system was developed, which essentially said, if you commit this list of crimes that we're defining as crimes, and there's a process for determining that you've committed a crime, um, here's a set of punishments. And what effectively happens, you know, these are the first legal codes uh, that are really written down in medieval Europe post the collapse of the empire. And what you see in these legal codes is that the punishments differ based on the status of the people involved. Um, If you kill someone else's serf, you have to pay a pittance to their owner. (laughs) Whereas if a serf kills a lord, they get, you know, killed horribly. Um, If uh, a noble kills a peasant, they pay to the state or, you know, whoever, uh, the government, the, the king, uh, a small fine. If um, a lord kills a lord, it's a very large fine. Okay. Uh, so your legal status, your, your legal class, which could be determined by, are you free or unfree? Do you belong to different tribes? Um, are you a man or a woman? Uh, what's your status, at, you know, in the noble hierarchy and things like that? Um, those determine, you know, something as basic as what happens when someone murders you. (laughs) (laughs) And there's, you know, to a certain extent, when you have people who are rich enough, they can literally get away with murder and not really sweat it out that much. And that's That's nice. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) For some. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Okay. So you mentioned that this was set up as kind of a military aristocracy to begin with. And the nobility had a lot of power and a lot of that came through basically the ability to use force. And they were at the top of the class food chain, so to say, and this is how it developed. I am making in this show, the parallel between the nobility and modern corporations And so I I would say kind of the modern example would be that corporations now have an economic aristocracy where Mm -hmm. you have this group of people that are business executives and board members and people higher up in the food chain. But it's an economic food chain, not really a class-based food chain, so to say. And they have a lot of power, a lot of sway, but it's all economic versus military and kind of have a different dynamic there. Yeah, I'd say that's actually, that's an interesting comparison. Uh, and to a certain extent, it's pretty fair. I, not in terms of murder. I think our society has sort of, um, you know, call me a little bit naive here, but uh, our, certainly rich people have an easier time getting off of murder charges and stuff than, uh, than poor people. But um, our society has certain certain red lines that people are expected to obey. But that said, um, you know, uh, the entire situation with copyright law where, you know, 
every time uh, Mickey Mouse is about to age out, Disney changes copyright law by lobbying Congress. You know, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the laws sort of apply differently based on how many how many resources you can throw at a problem. Yeah, yeah, and it's not just if you are rich. What if you are rich and you are a politician and you have a lot of corporate connections? Sure. You kind of have a different legal code in a sense that you end up being subject to. You're you're not yeah. really going to suffer the same things that a common free-range surf, so to say, yeah. would have to suffer. The, the the big difference though is that you know it's not codified the you know the the economic aristocracy of modern times can get away with stuff um and they're able to manipulate the system for the nobles in the middle ages that was the system that's how it was supposed to work and a lot of the peasants thought that it was supposed to work that way too <laughs> they just True. thought it was like well of course that's how it works yeah yeah <laughs> I, yeah, I guess I don't know which one's better or worse to have a system at least coded in where I know what's supposed to happen and how this plays out, or one yeah. where I think it's supposed to go one way and I see everywhere I look that that's not reality. Right. So yeah. neither, neither one is very good, I guess. <laughs> um, yes. But you had mentioned offhand uh, guilds. That was something I did want to ask you about as well. Could you sure. say a little bit about what the guild system was and the power that guilds held within society at that time? So, to explain guilds, we need to back up a little bit, because there was a, a whole group of people that I didn't talk about yet, in terms of the feudal system, because they don't quite fit in comfortably. This gets into where everything I say is wrong. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, cities. It, the the class, classic feudal system that I've described is based on a lot of work that's been done by French historians that describes a lot of Northwestern European conditions. In those areas, the Romans hadn't built up as many cities, and the ones that were there kind of got flattened by the fall of the empire to a large extent. Um, in southern Europe, where the cities survived better, um, that wasn't it was a very different situation, where actually the aristocrats, rather than living in, you know, castles out on their rural estates, the aristocrats in Italy and southern France and Spain moved into the cities, and so cities stayed alive basically as, you know, uh, life support systems for the aristocrats who kept skimming money off the peasants and pumping it into the urban economies. Um, in northern Europe, though, not all the cities fell. Uh, uh, you know, they didn't fall apart completely. And within... Um, a couple centuries of so around the year uh, seven or eight hundred, you started to see a revival in the economy of Northern Europe. Um, a lot of that had to do with Charlemagne's empire, you know, bringing down a lot of those trade barriers. Uh, a lot of it had to do with a couple really key long distance trade routes. Uh, a lot of historians are now thinking that these trade routes specialized in slavery, uh, particularly when. Uh, Charlemagne was around, uh, they were taking a whole lot of slaves. And uh, there's some key work that's been done by a guy named Michael McCormick in this area, who basically showed that there were a whole lot of economic incentives because the slave markets, the, the slave economy from the Roman Empire was still pretty much functional in the Eastern Roman Empire and in the Islamic Caliphate. Uh, and so 
and those those economies were doing gangbusters in this period and so uh there was a huge flow of slaves um in all likelihood from northern and western europe uh out through the baltic and then down through russia into the the byzantine empire and the uh the arab empire and then there was another route that went sort of down to Italy, up the Rhine, uh, and then from there got traded across the Mediterranean. And uh, huge numbers of people <laughs> probably got uh, shipped out in this this method. And uh, it sort of has the all the parameters of a classic boom cycle, uh, because eventually they ran out of people that they could take. Uh, and you know, a lot of it had to do with Charlemagne's empire, because... Uh, a lot of these people were being taken as war prisoners. And when Charlemagne's empire got to the point where it couldn't expand anymore and it started to collapse, um, you know, the, the sources of slaves dried up. But in Makes any sense. case, yeah. <laughs> um, in any case, with all this trade activity, cities started to pop back up. Um, and uh, I did like a series of five episodes on this because I'm an urban planner and I care. Uh, yeah. So I'll try and summarize this, but uh, there were a bunch of cities. Some of them just popped up naturally. A lot of them were places where bishops set up residence. Some of them were places where just a local Lord found an old Roman city and was like, you know, I bet I'd look like, you know, hot stuff. If I set up in the gatehouse of this, like, you know, Epic, like Tolkienian ruin, <laughs> like <Yeah. laughs> I look really cool. You know, I've got, I've got a cast. I've got a, a city wall. I've got a whole city here. Sure, it's empty, <laughs> but anyway. So, you know, around these little nucleuses of trade activity. Oh, and monasteries. Monasteries were a very important one, and we'll probably come back to that later, um, into some other important aspects of monasteries. But, um, you know, around these sort of nucleuses of settlement economic activity got going. And then, you know, when the economy in general started to pick back up, possibly due to the slave trade, um, they started growing very strongly. And so you have a class of people who are commoners, but who aren't farmers. And it pretty quickly, once you get like, um, you know, the, these rural villages had, you know, a hundred people, 200 people, in them uh once you get like a couple thousand people like which is a tiny town by modern standards um but it becomes ungovernable by a, a feudal system so the lords would enter into arrangements with sort of the the leaders of these cities uh who you know basically the leaders of the cities would agree to pay a tax to the lord rather than the Lord having to come in and individually shake down thousands of people. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, within these trading settlements and the, these growing industrial settlements, uh, industrial in sort of the most basic sense, we're not talking about satanic mills or anything here where, you know, <laughs> a, a guy built making a saddle, you know, and selling it up to the countryside on market days. Um in, in these kinds of trading settlements, you started to get situations where, like in the village, I didn't say this before, but uh, I probably should have, the The village had a lot, a couple pieces of key capital investment that made life livable in the view of 
post-Roman people. So like Roman culture was obsessed with bread. <laughs> bread mm -hmm. is like, you need bread to survive. And so all these villages, the Lord would provide them with an oven. Oh. <laughs> the the flip side of that is that you had to use that oven and you had to pay for it. And so there was a baker and that baker had a, essentially an, a monopoly on baking within that settlement. Now, of course, you could go home and use a big flat rock and make effectively pancakes uh, the, or the you know pre-modern, pre-chemical leavener equivalent of said. <laughs> but um, people really needed, people really wanted bread. It was like um, when you read accounts of, you know, people, uh, once you get to like the age of discovery and, and stuff like that, and people, Europeans trying to go to these foreign lands where people aren't eating bread all the time. And they're just like completely flabbergasted with how anyone survives. <laughs> so these peasants would, you know, the baker in the village had a, had a monopoly. Um, sometimes there was a blacksmith. Um, there were a couple people like that who had, uh, capital investments, many of which were paid for by the Lord, and in return they got a, a natural monopoly. Once you've had these market towns coming together, you might have two or three bakers. Oh no! <laughs> yeah. How does that work? <laughs> how, how does that work? Um, and essentially, th there's there's a couple different dynamics at play in any kind of market like this, where on the one hand you're in competition, but on the other hand there's this dynamic where you're all on one side of transactions and your customers are another side of transactions and you're on one side of transactions and the suppliers are on another side of transactions. And so these guilds kind of came together as ways they're, they're halfway between a lot of people think they started as social clubs. There's people who sort of disagree with that now. Uh, but they're somewhere between a social club, a trade union, uh, and um, an oligarchy. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Where people, you know, it it may well have started as, oh man, Jim died. Who's going to take care of his widow now? Jim was a good guy. We liked Jim. Um, well, look, let's just go around with all the bakers and, you know, pass the hat and we'll take care of his widow. And that sort of develops into a, a mutual aid society. And then that develops into something more coherent. And then everyone decides to start organizing. Um, some people think it was, it was more uh, economically oriented from the beginning. Um, we probably don't have enough evidence in existence to know because you know, who would write this stuff down yeah. uh, back then. But in any case, they, the general way it worked is that within the guilds, there were apprentices, journeymen, and then masters and masters were fully fledged. Let's just keep going with this. Masters are fully fledged bakers in our baker's guild. Okay. <laughs> uh, they have, they have all the equipment they need. They have a shop. Uh, and they are in business as bakers, and they are allowed to be in business as bakers by the other members of the Bakers Guild. Apprentices are people who are still learning the trade. Journeymen are fully trained, but they haven't earned enough money to buy their own equipment yet. And so the journeymen and the apprentices will work in the house slash business of a master. And uh, the guild sort of regulates... On the one hand, it regulates who can become a baker. There's a certain limited number of slots 
of baking that you can do within the settlement. And, you know, they won't let anyone else become a master until one of those slots is vacated, you know, and sometimes they would, but usually by the time you get into the, the, you know, the more middle agey part of the middle ages where we have records, they're pretty controlling. They want to reduce compet or keep competition down to a certain level. On the other hand, they regulate things like quality, uh, price and things like that, which is uh, a good for the public. And actually that's why, uh, the city and the lords tended to give these guilds charters and give them uh, legal character and defend their rights uh, in, in court. Then the guilds, because they were organized and had resources, um, a lot of what you talk about in the Middle Ages is just a lack of organization, a complete lack of resources. And so since the guilds were organized and had resources, the guilds would end up taking on things like making sure that certain sections of the city wall were in good repair or that like the streets in a certain quarter of the city were swept and kept huh. clean <laughs> and paved and stuff like that. They would take on all sorts of random stuff. And uh, like I said before, there was this big mutual aid element where they would take care of each other's widows and orphans and stuff. Uh, if something bad happened, uh, yeah, they're, they're a really interesting, complex thing. And they sort of get to, one of the big things about the Middle Ages is that a lot of different social functions that we think of as being completely separate, like, you know, if we need someone to take care of orphans, we have a certain government office that does it. It's not that that stuff wasn't happening in the Middle Ages. It was just all crammed together in different organizations that had a lot of different functions. Huh. So, you know, the guilds took care of orphans. Okay. <laughs> and, Good for them. And like took care of the plumbing. <laughs> well, not plumbing, <laughs> but they took care of sanitation in some cities and, and, you know, took care of the city wall. Huh. Yeah. It's interesting. I recently read uh, the history of Florence by Machiavelli mm -hmm. and he goes into detail on, you know, all the different, histories of Florence and what happened and the people in power. But it's interesting. He talks about the guilds and how that was first set up with X amount of guilds. And then they changed the system. And then there are major guilds and minor guilds. Then they changed the yeah. system again. And then there are this amount of guilds. And yeah. then like the guilds had more power than the aristocracy. Then they had less power and it's just back and forth. But you, you hear the, the importance of guilds and how they really were a large aspect in that local society within the city. They really mm -hmm. were a big force to reckon with. Yeah. And, and you, it was really different in each city. Uh, Florence is a great example of how complex it could get in Paris. They had something like 450 different guilds. I might Whoa. be getting that number entirely wrong, but they had hundreds of guilds and some of them were really specific, like making pieces of a garment like uh, a sleeve maker or something like someone <laughs> whose job is just to make the sleeve and then that guild would sell you know the people in that guild would sell it on to someone else who would do assembly uh, pretty advanced economy <laughs> um, yeah. by contrast you'd have places like that are you know barely coherent market towns that would have like one guild that had the blacksmiths, the bakers, <laughs> the merchants all together in, in one sort of economic, uh, you know, mutual aid society kind of thing. Yeah. 
there's so there's a ton of variety okay well i don't have a direct parallel to the guilds in modern day um, <laughs> actually my what i will end up getting to far in the future will be talking about what could potentially happen if all of these parallels that that i cover end up coming to fruition what would yeah. things look like and Part of that is the economic aspect and our whole capitalist system that we live under would change if all of these things really did play out in at least a rough parallel. And I think I will, I will theorize that we will have something more similar to a guild system where you have more like economic councils that have a lot more power. It's not mm -hmm. necessarily a corporation, but it's definitely not a government. Something maybe a little different, but organized around economic markets. Yeah. So, yeah, I definitely find that it's it's uh, an interesting way to organize. I would say that, you know, if if the people who are in the gig economy start to unionize, that's when we might start to see something like that. Uh, okay. Something, uh, you know, an interesting parallel would also be the, the, uh, cabbie, the taxi cab unions in New York City that existed between, you know, sort of the end of the Second World War and the rise of Uber. <laughs> like, <laughs> the unions are still there, but the way they functioned, uh, there's this a lot of governmental overlap. It, there's a lot of regulations that were there, partly through negotiation with them. Some of the regulations are imposed on them. But the effective, you know, result is sort of a, you know, competition is controlled, but also there's a lot of standards set in place uh, to ensure that, you know, people with disabilities have can get rides and uh, the public isn't getting ripped off and things like that. Yeah, that makes sense. So kind of like you had this guild system that ends up giving way. Let's say at first you have the guilds that have a lot of power within a city. And mm -hmm. as things evolve in that society, probably the nobility had much more power than the guilds as we get later on into this time period. Um, maybe that's uh, similar to how the unions were really big a few decades ago, had a lot of power yeah. within an economic standpoint. And then now moving to modern day, it's definitely more international corporations that pretty much run things economically. Yeah, I'd say that that's a that's a fair kind of parallel. Okay. Um, different reasons, of course, but you know the the um, the fall of the guild system in Italy had a lot to do with just the trashing of the Italian economy by political decisions that were being made in Italy. <laughs> um, you know, you, you can't fight two hundred years of constant war and not have an economic impact. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> well, the, the next thing I wanted to talk about, and you referenced monasteries, was the influence of the church and the idea of Christendom within this society. I, I have covered the church as far as an institution before in other interviews, but just yeah. as it relates to some of the stuff that we are discussing from this perspective, could you just give a little bit of insight into the influence it had within in this economic system and the cities forming and that kind of stuff? Sure. Um, in, in terms of your question, there's, there's two probably important aspects of the church to talk about. So in terms of their economic importance, the institutional framework that was set up around the church was a way to drive resources. It was a way to separate resources from people who had it and put it into somewhere else. Uh, so uh, 
certainly a lot of it was uh, the peasants paying tithes. Um, but actually, that was that came about later. Although certainly people, peasants, poor people would voluntarily give money to the church for tithes, but they weren't required for a very long time um, until fairly late in the Middle Ages. In fact, uh, the, the church in general had a, had very low amounts of compulsive power. So for the most part, pe- uh, a lot of people were voluntarily giving resources to the church. Uh, there were peasants, like I said, who would pay tithes, and you'd also have nobles who would just give pieces of land to the church, which again, the land is ultimately the main source of wealth in a pre-modern society. So all the uh, resources that were coming from the peasants working that land in terms of rents and stuff, they were getting paid to the monasteries and the bishops and things like that, rather than going to a lord. Um, but that, again, that's a little bit later. I, I think I want to start with uh, the monasteries in sort of the early, early Middle Ages, before they got a lot of wealth, before anything like that. Um, what you had was basically sort of a, a model commune <laughs> or a uh, something like that where the the initial rounds of monastery foundation, you have a whole bunch of people who are literate, uh, are basically up on farming technique. Uh, and early monasteries uh, would usually compel them to do some amount of physical labor. So they were doing their own farming, but they had a bunch of needs that couldn't be met by farming. So, you know, in terms of Catholic rituals, um, you know, there's needs for incense and you, you sort of want to have fancy clothes and fancy cups and wine, uh, which is a little hard to come by in Northern Europe and stuff like that. Um, and so very quickly, even before you started to get land donations, communities would develop around these monasteries of people serving the economic needs of the monks and then also people would show up who, you know, there would be pilgrims, people who wanted to talk to the monks, and then those people would have economic needs. And so other people would show up to serve those economic needs, <laughs> if, if that's making sense. But yeah. um, as soon as you start having clusters of population like that, uh, cities end up, you know, or towns and cities and things like that start to f- accumulate around them. Then once the monasteries also started to get like real financial resources in terms of land grants and things like that, uh, things, you know, took off from there. Um, The bishops had a very similar role. Uh, They had an administrative apparatus. Depending on the bishop, depending on the time and the place, there could be more of an apparatus. There could be less of an apparatus. You know, sometimes you were talking about one guy and a couple of his like a couple like-minded individuals in the woods. But um, usually you had something of an administrative apparatus. And so wherever they were, there was resources coming in and then being managed. And uh, again, you know, fancy clothes, wine, cups, things, incense, things like that. And so you, you have a need for trade there as well. Um, and one interesting anecdote is that the monasteries needed lots of candles. Huh. And candles are actually pretty hard to produce in the Middle Ages. They're very expensive. Uh, one of the best sources of wax is beeswax. But 
these are actually, um, you know, this is a period they didn't have modern hive systems where, you know, if, if you, you know, look at a modern beekeeping hive, there's these wooden frames that you can pull out and stuff. Uh, they didn't have those. They had these sort of clay, clay domes. And basically every time you wanted to harvest honey and wax from the hive, you had to destroy the hive. <laughs> and so beekeeping was actually, you know, honey and wax was really expensive because it was sort of a, there was a, a much more elaborate series of, um, you know, rich, uh, you know, processes that you had to go through to make sure that you didn't kill the hive that maybe you kept the queen and gave her a new dome to live in and <laughs> you know and um to make sure that they had the wax that they needed the monasteries set up these elaborate systems where they would um give widows an income um and it was like is this is where the economics and the social mission and the ideology all come together and this is classic middle ages widows in their territory would be given a small income and maybe a, you know a house and a small garden uh and in return they had to supply a certain number of candles every year to huh. the monks yeah. and that was the deal and you simultaneously you're taking care of poor people. You're, you're helping maintain widows, which is part of the, you know, ideologically driven mission of the, the monks and the church. But you're also, <laughs> you also have this economic benefit in that it, you know, completely, uh, it, it takes this, this thing that would have been a really expensive commodity and makes it much more widely available. Hmm. So there, there's a bunch of stuff like that, that the church drove, um, it certainly, of course, the, the biggest places were Rome, <laughs> where <Makes sense. laughs> everyone was going. Uh, one of the interesting ones is, uh, I, I'm terrible with the Spanish here, and I'm completely losing the word, but uh, <laughs> the, the shrine to St. James in Spain. Uh, it's, it's out in at the end of Spain in Galicia, uh, you know, the edge of the world as far as the Middle Ages are concerned. And it was one of the most you know, it was one of the first shrines that the papacy decided other than Jerusalem and Rome, the popes uh, recommended that people go there for their spiritual welfare, which uh, meant that there were pilgrims from all over Northern Europe coming down through France, crossing the Pyrenees in the, the Basque region, and then moving along Northern Spain through the mountains out to this, uh, this shrine. And uh, it drove in some ways it was the first like tourist economy, although people had actually been going to Jerusalem for years and there's, there's a ton of uh, uh, primary do source documents on that, which are really fascinating, you know, about like, you know, travel logs about like where to stay, <laughs> <laughs> stuff like that. But um, the, you know, in, in many ways, this is the first real mass tourist economy to, to a certain extent. Of course, it's all rich people. Like, uh, it's all nobles mostly who can afford this. But, you know, you had these, like, um, the, the religious establishments along the way, the monasteries and the churches, certain ones of them, the, the, the pilgrims would be directed to, and then those would be built up to handle the tourists essentially they, they'd have the beds and they'd have the infrastructure to have the food and everything. And then there were certain paths that people were supposed to take. And actually you can, people still do this to this day. Uh, it's still a, a pretty heavy pilgrimage site. And for a lot of people who go there, it doesn't 
mean as much spiritually if you just fly out to Galicia. So they like go to go to France and then walk <laughs> through the mountains. It's a long walk. <laughs> it's a long walk, but you know, for for people who are you know devout believers, this this uh, is an important journey for them. Um. So the 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 flip side of this is. Um, these monasteries also represented, you know, particularly when you're talking about the early Middle Ages, these monasteries represented the only people on the continent who were literate. Hmm. Uh, and so this gets back to like how the guilds served 19 different functions. The main goal of the monastery is to allow the monks to live a spiritual life the way that the church thought that they should be. Um, but by being a bunch of literate people together in a place uh, where they didn't have to worry about getting stabbed or starving to death, uh, the monasteries became the only educational institutions in Europe for you know a couple hundred years. And even after that couple hundred years ended, um, Charlemagne encouraged the development of bishop schools some of which didn't survive, but ultimately the, the Bishop School of Paris became the uh, foundation of the University of Paris, which is still open. And, you know, so, some of the, the biggest, uh, most revered educational institutions in Europe today started out as bishop schools. But um, even then, the monasteries were f- forming a, a really important part of the intellectual heart of the church because the Pope had almost no power (laughs) of compulsion. The Pope, people thought the Pope was great. He was the head of the church, but you know, if the Pope tried to tell someone to do something or think a certain way, the Pope was actually fairly limited in what the Pope could compel people to do. The reason that the Catholic church held together is because everyone was educated in these monasteries. Um, monasteries became a huge source of all the, the church functionaries and bureaucrats, all the functionaries and bureaucrats for the monarchs of Europe um, tended to come from the monasteries for, for a good long time. And then ultimately, you know, because the monks are these deeply spiritual, devout people, well, if you need a new bishop, of course you get a monk. Yeah. <laughs> and so... The intellectual and um, if you want to write a letter to talk to someone about something interesting, you don't write that letter to John the farmer down the street who can't read. You write it to a monastery because there's people there who can read. Um, And so ultimately, you know, the, the church sort of had a has a bunch of different aspects in the Middle Ages. You know, part of it is this hierarchy with the bishops and the archbishops and all that stuff. But in some ways, that's the least important part of the church intellectually in terms of the ideology. Um, it was these monasteries that were the reservoirs of learning that survived from the fall of the Roman Empire. And it was the conversations within these monasteries and between these monasteries um, in these sort of informal correspondence networks that formed the intellectual and ideological unity that would sort of become Europe. Well, with that, I think that is a very good place to end this first part of the interview with Benjamin Jacobs. This will cover the 
early, more historically focused section. And as we move on, we'll get into a little more about the church and more about politics and economics and lots of very interesting things. So please stay tuned and come back for the next section next week. I believe this interview will be broken up into four parts. It was very long. All sections should be about the same length as most episodes I've been putting out in this beginning intro to season two with all of these interviews I've been doing. They'll all be about an hour long. And so that will be the format we'll go for. And then I'll shift into the next and I believe as of now, at least the last interview that I did. So that wraps that up. I'd like to end, like always, thanking you as the listener, thanking you for your support of all different kinds, ratings, reviews, emails, uh, Patreon supporters, especially giving their hard-earned money to support this podcast. Thank you very much. Another side note that I probably should have mentioned a long time ago, but uh, for the patrons, if you are a patron, um, you can get on there. And there was a post that I did when I first set up the Patreon page about my personal investments. Since in this podcast, I talk about economics and finance and these types of subjects. I wanted to be fairly upfront with Uh, where I put my own personal money and investments. And that way, I am very open about those types of things. I didn't put the specific amounts, but I did percentages and what types of things and companies I was invested in. And that changed. I did update that every six months or a little less. Uh, It wasn't all that often, but I did update that. And one of those updates came just a few months prior to the coronavirus hitting and basically the stock market crashing. And in that update, I talked about how I had moved the majority of my investments into gold and gold stocks and crypto and a few other things. And so hopefully the patrons were uh, watching that and had seen when I had posted that you should get an update or an email or something whenever I update a post or put a post up. And so I just wanted to mention that because sometimes there are things that I put up there that aren't necessarily a bonus episode, but other bonus content that might be informative and might be helpful. My portfolio, for example, has gained about 40% since this virus really hit, while everybody else is currently sitting down roughly 40%. So that's a pretty big difference, and that would have been helpful, I'm sure, to uh, be thinking at least about those things, even if you don't just mirror me exactly. I'm not going to update this enough for you to even do that if you wanted to. But just to give you the idea and the concepts and why I was doing what I was doing. And so uh, I just wanted to mention that because like many other things I'm talking about in season two, with this COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of them become very relevant. And so I want to highlight those things because I, I think that does highlight the importance of studying these types of things and digging into these subjects and concepts and things like this. So uh, that's all that I have. Come back next time for part two. Thank you very much for listening and I'm out. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundations Podcast. Making for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.